Okay, good morning everyone. I want to thank our sponsors for this morning's Parsha class, Yisro 2019, Tafshin Ayin Tess, sponsored by Judy Rosen in memory of her beloved husband, whom I knew well and remember well from growing up in Tinek, Rabbi Marvin Rosen, Harav Elimelech Baruch Ben Ben Sion, commemoration of his first Yurtzeit is Neshama should have an Aliyah. And also by Harriet Schneier, in memory of her beloved husband, Chaim Ben Abba, his Neshama should have an Aliyah as well. Before we begin, just two quick uh, notes. Number one, uh, you know we've been uh, running this campaign, Friends of BRS, those who are not members, who don't live within walking distance of BRS, but who identify with our values and our vision and who benefit from our classes and our programs. To be a member of BRS, Friends of BRS, $180. Some of you have benefited with uh, preferred seating, extra legroom, a free cocktail, <laughs> early boarding, and so on. Um, if you're listening online, someone suggested that I mention this for those who are listening online. If you're listening online and you'd like to join Friends of BRS, you can go to our website, brsonline.org slash friends with an S. brsonline.org slash friends, backslash friends with an S, and join. We greatly appreciate it. Also, a week from last night, less than a week away, where you're sitting right now is going to be transformed to an incredible evening, a Hasidish Shatish, with a great Rebbe of Moshe Weinberger who's coming. It's in celebration of our Dr. Yitzhak Belazan base medrash of BRS. Certainly you're invited to support the base medrash, but whether you do or you don't, men and women are invited to an incredible evening. We have music, it'll be singing, an incredible evening, inspiration, words by the one and only Rav Moshe Weinberger, food, it'll be a really, really tremendous evening. Men and women are invited, the flyers are on the seats and available in the lobby. We expect an enormous crowd because uh, people from all over South Florida will be here, so come early and get a seat. With that, we begin Parshas Yisro. We are on the Art Scroll Stone Chumash. Please turn your phones to vibrate or off. A reminder, turn your phones off. Page 394 in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash. One of my favorite, favorite parshios of the year. We're introduced to an uh, incredible figure, Yisro. Yisro is a non-Jew. Certainly when we're introduced to him, he's a non-Jew. And yet, he merits one of the most seminal, if not the most seminal parsha in the entire Torah, is named for Yisro. And there's a series of questions at the very beginning of the parsha that you can't help but be bothered by. We know that there's a fundamental debate throughout Torah. Yesh muktam Torah. Is the Torah written chronologically or is the Torah written thematically? Is the Torah trying to record history and it communicates it, it transmits it in the order in which it occurred? Or the Torah is not a historical document? It's not communicating history at all. It's written thematically. It's a Musar Sefer. It is a safer of values and vision for the Jewish people, not necessarily historically accurate, or the chronology historically accurate, but trying to communicate ideas. There's a great debate. And according to the one opinion that it's not written in order, the truth is Yisro did not come until after Matan Torah. First the Torah was given, Yisro heard about it. Gemara Zvachim has a debate exactly what stimulated Yisro to come. What did he hear that so moved him? Was it... The war with Amalek, the splitting of the sea, the giving of the Torah. What was it that moved him? But according to one opinion, it was he heard about the giving of the Torah. Well, if that's what moved him to come and he only came after the Torah was given, why does the Torah record his arrival first? In other words, if it's written chronologically, you never have to ask that question. Torah is a historical document. It's written chronologically. It's written in order. But if it's out of order, every time it's out of order, one should be bothered enough to ask... Why did the Rebbe Shalom, why did the Almighty organize it out of order? What was he seeking to communicate? What are we meant to learn from it? 
So why was this placed out of order? Why was Yisro's arrival extracted and put first before Harsinai? What is it about Yisro's arrival? And what lessons do we learn from him that needed to precede our reading of Matan Torah? Because it informs and inspires our reading of Matan Torah. I'm not going to answer that question. I want you to think about it. I want you to think about it. It's an important question. I think it's the fundamental question of the entire Parsha. And I'll give you a hint. The hint is the opening word of the whole Parsha. Yisro teaches us something that we needed to learn and something that we continue to need to learn. And that is the art of listening. Vayishma Yisro. Yisro excelled. He had the exceptional capacity to listen to people, to world events, to history. There's something about Yisro. But maybe we'll develop that more another time. So Yisro arrives. What's amazing is that Yisro arrives with tremendous fanfare. Right? Yisro hears everything Hashem had done, which itself is a separate question. Why is there a debate in Zvachim? What did Yisro hear? Look at the Pasuk. The very first Pasuk of our Parsha tells us exactly what he heard. Doesn't exactly leave room for a debate. What did he hear? The Torah gives away. Spoiler alert. The first passage tells us what Yisro heard. As so commentators say, the question the Gemara and Zavachim was entertaining is not what did Yisro hear. Yisro heard the whole world opened the newspaper, saw the headlines. God took the Jewish people out of Egypt. Ten plagues splitting of the sea. You couldn't miss it. Most missed it. Did nothing. They, they just sipped their coffee, ate the Danish, turned to the next page and uh, blamed Israel for something. But they, didn't, they, didn't, they weren't moved to change their life because of it. Yisra was. So we read it, Mashmu Hashama, Rashi quotes this, the first Rashi. Mashmu Hashama Uba, Kriyas Yamsev, Mechemes Amalek, and so on. The question is not Mashmu Hashama. It's not what did Yisra hear. Everyone heard it. If you had an internet connection, if you were following the news, if you read the newspaper, if you were alive and breathing, everyone heard what had happened. The question wasn't what did he hear. It's not mashmu shama. It's the last word. Mashmu shama uba. What did he hear and how did he hear it in such a way that he didn't just hear it and click on the next page and scroll down to the next story and turn the newspaper. What did he hear uba? What moved him to come? So Yisro comes. Yisro comes. There's something that's even more troubling though. We hear about the impressive arrival of Yisro and Moshe does something frankly not only unusual arguably against halacha. The Gemara tells us that a father and mother are entitled to be mochel on their kavod. If one wants to, we can forgive honor. So my child says, Abba, can I sit in your seat? Say, sure, sit in my seat. No problem. You're allowed to be mochel kavod. And a rebbe can be mochel kavod. But a king, a melech, can't. And here Moshe had the status of a melech. He was the king of the Jewish people. And yet, Moshe doesn't sit back and wait for Yisra to come to greet to him before he greets him. Moshe goes out to greet his father and seemingly in violation of the rule about a melech not being mochel on his kavod. But Soloveitchik in his Chumash deals with this question. And he addresses it in his way. What does he say? There's a rule a king doesn't have permission to compromise the honor due to him. Gemara Sanhedrin Yutes. Moshe was considered the king over Israel. And yet he bowed to his father-in-law. This can be understood based on the two aspects of the honor due a king. The first, the honor due to his position cannot be compromised because otherwise the very institution would be in jeopardy. If the king is too casual, comfortable, accessible, if the king is too forgiving, he's buddy-buddy with his, with his uh, servants, with his subjects, thank you, then the whole institution of monarchy is compromised. 
And why do we care about that? Because how do we relate to Hashem as the Melech Malchi Amlochem? How do we relate to and identify with God as the King of Kings? If the human king becomes so comfortable and casual, we'll bring that same attitude to Hashem, and that won't be good. So the first thing is a king has to preserve the honor due to him, because he represents not only himself, he represents the institution of monarchy. And if we want Hashem, if we want to maintain that same awe and reverence of Hashem, then the king can't compromise. Second, though, is the honor due to a great individual as a result of his own accomplishments, an honor which can, in fact, be declined. Since Moshe was not appointed king in a formal sense and therefore did not represent the official position, he was allowed to bow down to Yisro. That was Rabbi Soloveitchik's insight. But others say Moshe is displaying here what is his hallmark characteristic, humility. And what goes along with humility is a tremendous sense of gratitude. Moshe never forgot what Yisro did in providing hospitality to him. When he was on the run, when he was fleeing for his life from Egypt, and he came to Midian, it was Yisro who provided that hospitality and shelter and gave him a job watching his sheep and so on. And Moshe never forgot. And therefore, he was moved by a deep sense of hakaras atov. The recognition of gratitude was never ending. So much so that even now when Yisro is joining the people, later, Moshe doesn't say... Yeah, then I was a poor guy on the run and he gave me shelter, but now I'm the king. Let him come to me. And then I'll greet him here. No, Moshe still feels that sense of gratitude. It's the Jewish notion of gratitude. We quoted back in Sefer Bereshit, Rav Yerucham Levavitz, Mashkiach of the Mir said, that's what Leah means when she says, Hapam, Odes Hashem. Not, she names her son Yehuda because I'll thank God this time. But it's a bit me, it's a question. Hapam, Odes Hashem? Why does she name him Yehuda? And the Gemara says she was the first to really show gratitude. What do you mean she was the first? Noach brought sacrifices of gratitude. Yeshiva Shem to Aver. We have, we have plenty of precedent of others showing gratitude. So he explains, Leah's gratitude was different than any other. Normally we see gratitude as, you did something for me, I incurred a debt to you because of the kindness you showed me. In fact, what's the word that we use? We say, I am indebted to you. I'm indebted to you. So the classic understanding of gratitude is, how do I pay the debt? I say thank you. And when I say thank you, and I give you that acknowledgement that you need, now we're even. You did something nice, I acknowledge it and say thank you, paid off my debt, call it a day, now we're even. You do a big thing for me, I gotta show you a lot of gratitude. The gratitude has to be commensurate or parallel with the act of kindness. But, when I say thank you, I've paid off my debt, my debt is concluded. Rav Yerucham explains that Leah was the first to express a different type of gratitude. It was a gratitude that was never-ending. It was a gratitude that said, I've never paid off the debt. I'm never done saying thank you. You've done something for me. Certainly something that was life-changing and transformative. I'm never done. So Leah names her son Yehuda, saying, Hapam Odes Hashem. And we normally read it saying, this time I thank God. Why? Because she was expecting only a certain number of sons. She surpassed that number. She expressed gratitude. Rav Yerucham says, no. Read it. What am I going to only thank God once? No, she names him Yehuda. Every time she called his name, she was saying, thank you God for this son. Like my parents do with my younger brother Judah, Yehuda. Every time they say his name, they say, thank God, this one, he's a doctor. Thank God. Thank God he gave us a doctor. So Yehuda, Leah names him Yehuda. What am I going to only thank once? And she taught us that true gratitude is not paying off a debt and being done. It's not discharging an obligation and being finished. A true sense of gratitude is, I forever carry with me the hakara 
the recognition of the good you did. And why am I mentioning this? Because Moshe was the paradigm of it. Moshe refuses to, not refuses, Moshe is not asked to strike the Yardin, it saved his life. Nor does he hit the sand, it too saved his life. And here he goes out to greet Yisro, ah, he's the king, let the king come to him. The answer is, Moshe has never done showing gratitude. For the rest of his life he remembers that, he remembers that um, Yisro gave him hospitality and took care of him. I have a friend in uh, New Jersey, a rabbi in New Jersey, who made a shidduch, and every year on the anniversary of that couple, they send him as the shadchan a gift. They're concerned with giving each other a gift, but they also send him a gift. Because they say every year, Hapam Hashem? What, now that we're 10 years, 25 years, now that we have grandchildren, we should forget the person who got this all started, who took a moment to remember us? Gratitude is not, yeah, we gave him shadchanis, what do we have to thank him again for? I gave him shalchanas, I don't have to ever remember him again for the rest of my life. No, hapam odas Hashem. If you really feel gratitude, you've never fulfilled that debt, you continue to feel it, that's Moshe here and Yisro. But there's a question about Yisro. We're going to get past the first Pasuk, I promise. <laughs> I don't know how much further past, but we're going to get further past. Okay, so there's a, a bigger puzzling question about Yisro. Yisro arrives with fanfare, pomp, and circumstance. He's greeted Moshe, the king, goes out, leaves the White House, leaves the Oval Office, and goes out to greet this seeming, this uh, visitor, this casual visitor. So we hear a lot about Yisro's arrival. He abandoned all other religions and all other modes of worship. Yisro had experimented with comparative religion, and he joins the Jewish people, and he joins them in, in a compromised place. They're in the desert. They're fighting to, for their life. They're on a journey, unclear exactly when or where they're going to go. And, uh, and Yisro joins them. And that's very, very impressive, and he deserves the accolades, and deserves the Parsha to be named for him. Pasuk tells us a little later in the Parsha, that Yisro was done, he paid his visit, and he sent off his father-in-law, and he went to his land. And the question is, where did Yisro go? Did Yisro convert? Did he not convert? Where did he go? Did he go permanently, or did he go to pack up his stuff and come back? Where did he go and what ultimately happens to Yisro? This is the Parsha of Yisro. It is Parsha's Yisro, literally. He's part of every Shabbos table, Parsha questions, Divrei Torah. All impressed Yisro, he heard, he listened, the art of listening. What happened to him? Whatever happened to Yisro? So we do encounter him one more time. I'm sure you remember later in Sefer Bamidbar. Yisro reemerges among the nations of Israel among the nation of Israel. And then again, Yisro says, it's been a nice visit. It's time. I'm ready to go home. And this time, in what some would consider a striking departure from normal or normative behavior, Yisro turns to his father-in-law and says, I beg you, do not leave. You cannot go. You have to stay. He begs, he pleads, he implores his father-in-law, stay. Don't go. Don't go. L'chai tanu. Moshe says, please don't go. And Yisra says, I gotta go. I gotta go home. I gotta go to my land. And the discussion ends abruptly. Moshe says, you gotta come with us. You'll be our eyes. We'll see everything through you. And the discussion ends very abruptly. And for a second time, we're left not knowing what happened to Yisrael. What happened to Yisrael? Who here thinks that Yisrael stayed with the Jewish people? Who thinks Moshe was persuasive and compelling and he convinced Yisrael to stay with him? Okay, is the mic on? Is anyone here? Is anything? 
What's going on? Anyone? Who here thinks he stayed? One person in the back, a courageous person. Two. We are two. Who thinks Yisrael left? Was not moved by Moshe's words. Three. Okay, that is a very small percentage of the people participating. Most people are hedging. So, whichever answer you would have given, you would have been right. Which just teaches you in the future to take the gamble. Because in Torah, usually there'll be a machlokas. The text is ambiguous, and it leaves room for the commentators to debate, and that's exactly what they do. The Ramban says, Moshe's argument were so compelling and convincing that Yisro yielded to the request, and he stayed. Svarno says, Yisro's earlier pattern played true again. He was out of there, he booked out, he went home. And the question is, why wouldn't the Torah tell us? His arrival in our parsha is with such fanfare, and his departure is so ambiguous that it lends itself to debate why is the Torah ambiguous? Why didn't it tell us what happened? Why didn't it tell us? I think there's a very, very powerful lesson that we can understand from here. And that is that the Torah, maybe, is not really concerned ultimately what happened with Yisrael. Did he stay? Did he go? Did he convert? Did he move? What happened with Yisrael? It's interesting, curious, but that's not the Torah's primary concern. How many children did he have? Where did he live? What minion did he dive in at? What kind of yarmulke did he wear? The Torah is not so concerned with Yisro. Did he retire Century Village Boca, Deerfield? The Torah is not so concerned. The Torah is most impressed and wants to impress upon us not whatever happened to Yisro, but Yisro's journey, how he came to the Jewish people. Because Yisro did something unusual at a time. Yisro was not a spectator to his own life, and Yisro was not a spectator to the world events that were unfolding around him. Yisro decided to get in the game. He wasn't watching from the sidelines. Mashmu shama uba. He got up and he came. He didn't just read the newspaper or hear the headlines, but he was moved by the world events to the degree that it made him come. We say every day, Shemu amimir gazun. They all heard. The whole nations of the world. Everybody heard. But Yisro got off the sideline and he wasn't a spectator to that reality. He got up and he came. You got up. You have to get up. And you have to make a difference. You've got to make a difference. This is, I think, a challenge. We live in a world where people are spectators even to their own lives. I once visited kids on college campus. Rabbi Brody and I went on a college tour, college road trip to visit our kids at different college campuses. And I remember having a conversation with a kid, one of our students, one of our young men, about what classes he was taking. And he told me he was taking a class on reality television. That's now considered an education. A class on reality television. Maybe a psychology or sociology class would be good on reality television. Saying a class on reality television. The whole genre of reality television speaks of a culture in which we are, enter- we are entertained by being spectators to other people's lives. We try to distract ourselves from our own lives. We don't want to have to make our own decisions or take our own responsibility or mold and shape our own reality or destiny. It's easier to sit back and be entertained by reality TV and watching other people's lives. There's nowhere where this is more expressed. The greatest spectator event of the year has now been determined. One of those evil teams made it back in. Ugh. Yuck. But um, I've convinced myself I'm happy because it'll be more painful for their fans when they lose in the Super Bowl. That's how I... That's how I comfort myself. Anyway, so this is the way I was raised as a New Yorker. This is the proper way to... This is our Masora. So the Super Bowl has now been set. And when you think about the numbers, 161.3 million viewers tuned into the last Super Bowl. Just think about that number. 161.3 million viewers. 
tuned in to be spectators and watch and root and be fans of and sit on the sideline. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with being entertained. There's nothing wrong with having some recreation to recreate. There's nothing wrong with taking a break. But if it reflects a told mind view and a life view, then it's a problem. We're going to read later in the parsha. Kashbarhu tells the Jewish people, I'm going to lift you on the wings of eagles and I'm going to bring you close to me. This is Hashem's promise. Lift you on the wings of eagles. We've had miraculous missions from Israel of bringing our fellow Jews to Israel named for this Pasuk. Hashem will lift us on the wings of eagles. Little did we know the miracle of being airlifted from countries where Jews were in danger as a fulfillment of this very prophecy, of this very, of this very Pasuk. A beautiful, magnificent song by my buddy Simcha Liner on, this, on these words. So the first move is made by Hashem, Ve'esha'ashem al kanfei nisharim, I'll lift you up on the wings of eagles. But what's the very next Pasuk? Ve'isimli skula mikol ha'amim, you'll be more beloved than all the nations. Hashem makes the first move and we have to respond. Here's the amazing thing. Rashi there quotes, why does Hashem put us on the, on the wing? Rashi quotes, the eagle soars the highest, and if the bird were to carry in the claws, its children in the claws below, then the archer could shoot below with an arrow, other birds that are predatory could attack those children, but when the eagle that soars the highest placed the children on the wings, now they are safe. Now they're safe. Now they're protected. Now they're protected. But here's the thing. I forgot where I saw this. Here's the thing. The eagle has very short arms. So how do the children get on the wings? Has long wings, but the little legs, the little tiny legs that stick out. How do the, how do the children get on the wings of the eagles? What do they have to do? They have to climb on. You want to be protected, you've got to make the first move, you've got to climb on. You can't be a spectator. You can't be watching. You can't be sitting on the sideline. You want redemption. You want Geula. We've talked about this throughout Sefer Shmos. Dalad Lashonos of Geula. Dalad Geulos. We've talked about the notion of the Jewish people having to be partners with Hashem in killing the sheep and the blood and the doorpost. Bris Mila. The Damayach. The two have in common is the notion we don't sit on the sideline. We're not spectators. We don't sit back waiting for redemption. You're looking for the shidduch or the job or please God to be blessed with children and continuity or whatever the reality that we seek to be changed in our lives. We daven, we place our faith in Hashem, but we have to be willing to get up and take hishtadlis and take initiative and make a difference. Hashem says, take the first step and I'll bring you the rest all the way, all the way there. Hashiveinu Hashem Eilacha v'nashuva. There's a partnership, there's a cooperation that has to happen. We can't be spectators. So this was a long way of telling you that perhaps... We don't ever find out what happens with Yisrael because it's not important. Where does Yisrael ultimately reside? Where does Yisrael settle down? It doesn't matter. Was he convinced by Moshe or not? That's not our concern. What we're most moved by and the reason the Pasha's named for him is because he's not a spectator. He's not listening or watching what's happening in the world and then sitting still. He's moved by it to come. All right, way too much time has already passed. Let's fly through a little bit more of the Pasha and then get to the Pesukim I want to look at together. Yisrael arrives... He's excited Vayichad Yisrael. He gets goosebumps, Rashi says, by what's happening. When's the last time you've been so moved by spirituality you've had goosebumps? Come next Monday night, Rav Moshe Weinberger, you're going to get goosebumps. It's a goosebump evening of, of spirituality, of nourishing and talking to your neshama. That's what we're missing in life. We're not moved, our lack of awe in anything. You've heard me say this also countless times, but the eh generation doesn't get goosebumps in anything. Vayichad Yisrael. 
Lashon Chadudim, it was sharp, goosebumps. You got to be so moved, so excited, so touched, so inspired, your neshama, so lit on fire that you get goosebumps from something. When's the last time that happened and how can we make it happen again? Yisro comes and like a good shver gives unsolicited advice to his son-in-law and tells, I'm okay, I'm allowed to say that now because I'm on the father-in-law team. So I'm allowed to say that. So gives unsolicited advice to his son-in-law, Moshe, everything he's doing wrong, you're amazing, you're fantastic, you're talented, but you're doing it all wrong. Right? You're trying to make yourself accessible to everyone and you can't possibly serve everyone. And therefore you need to set up a system, a hierarchy, where you share the responsibility so that everyone can be attended to and everyone's uh, judicial cases, cases can be heard. And then he goes through with Moshe, very, very instructive. What are they looking for? Those are the criteria, those are the qualifications for Jewish leadership. That's what we are looking for. Why those qualities? For another time. Moshe hears... I'm giving you a hint to the question I shared at the beginning. But notice a word that repeats itself throughout our parsha. Vayishma Moshe no. What did Moshe learn from Yisro? Vayishma. He hears, I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying. Vayas kol asher amar, and he does everything his father-in-law told him. He chose such men. Vayishalach Moshe eskosno, vayilach lo el And Moshe sends his father-in-law off, which also is fascinating. It's a contrast later with Bamidbar. Later, when Yisrael wants to leave, Moshe says, No, you can't go, you have to stay. Whereas here, Moshe says, What time is your plane leaving? I'm happy to drop you off at the airport. You need a ride? Let me carry your bags. What time are you going? So the contrast between the two is, is something which is fascinating. It's now the third month. Rabbi Saladichik points out, The word chodesh is derived from the word chadash, new, referencing the new moon. Up to this point, Bnei Yisrael underwent two experiences of renewal. The first was the experience of juridical and political freedom. They acquired themselves from slavery. The second was psychological, the transformation of a slave personality to a free personality. And now, Chodesh Hashlishi. Such a great insight. So, so the Rav. So, homiletical. But Chodesh Hashlishi is Chadash Hashlishi. This is the third renewal. And what's the, so the first renewal was the experience of political freedom. You were enslaved and servituted, oppressed, persecuted, and now you were liberated. That's political freedom. Number two was psychological freedom. You saw your oppressors drown in the sea. As we said last week, not only miyad mitzrim, miyad mitzrayim. Not only were the Jews taken out of Egypt, Egypt was now taken out of the Jews, the psychological freedom. And chodesh hashlishi is the chadash hashlishi. What is the third renewal? The freedom to surrender oneself to a higher authority. Accepting a commitment to become subservient to God of one's own free will. We don't normally think of that as a freedom. We think of that, too many people are turned off to religion because they think of that not as a freedom, but they think of that as a form of slavery. Too many people think we just exchanged one taskmaster for another. We were serving Paro, now we've got to serve Hashem. Before Paro owned our time, now God owns our time. So did we really gain freedom? Were we really liberated or emancipated? All we did is exchange taskmasters. Too many people think. We know we have a tradition that's exactly the opposite. Al-tikra, al-tikra, charos, al that one can only attain true freedom through Torah. That's deserving of, of exploration another time, which we don't have time for now. But I'll pose that to you as a second question. And, and we don't know how to answer that question, by the way. Good luck convincing the future generations to stay true to Torah. Because now they have real freedom. You know what real freedom they define as? I have unlimited data. That's real freedom. No, seriously, real freedom is that I can go, eat, do whatever I want. When the Jews lived in the ghetto and the non-Jews, every time we tried to leave the ghetto and assimilate, 
put us back in the ghetto and discriminated. So the Jew lacked freedom, whether it was by choice or by force. But today, our children, grandchildren have what they would consider real freedom. They can leave religion, drop, define themselves however they want in every which way. And that they define as the real freedom. So why would they want to stay enslaved to this tradition and this religion? Why would they want to be shackled and bonded to something that limits where they can eat and what they can do on Saturdays, what they can look at and say and speak and every aspect of their lives? So how did we really gain freedom? We got out of one situation of servitude, but then we stood at Harsina and Hashem said, oh, you're free. Now that you're free, let me tell you 613 things you have to do. And if you don't do them, you'll be accountable. Let me give you things that are time-bound, where you have deadlines every day. And if you don't get it in by the deadline every day, you're accountable. How is that freedom? That's a fundamental question. If you can't answer it, think about it, read about it, explore it, look for an answer to it. Because if we can't formulate a compelling answer, a meaningful, enriching answer to that question, right, m- many of you are looking at me with blank faces like, I never thought about that, I never considered that. Why did I ever have to think about that? My parents told me, this is what you do, this is what you do. What do you mean? This is how I was raised, this is what you do. I wouldn't disappoint them. I wouldn't break the chain of our transmission, of our family being observant Jews. Like, what are you even talking about that question for? Why is that even relevant? What are you wasting your time on that for? This is how I was raised, this is what we do, this is what you do. So I'll tell you a little secret. That doesn't work anymore. Those days are long over. And the data and the statistics are proving it. And as concerned as we are with outreach, we have to be equally or more concerned with inreach and retention within our own families. And now our children have, so to say, the luxury and freedom of living in this blessed country to be asking that question. Why should I do it if it doesn't do anything for me? I've had that conversation with countless young people. Put filling on. Why? It doesn't do anything for me. They measure everything through that. It doesn't make me happy. It doesn't bring me pleasure. It doesn't do it. Did our grandparents ever ask if things did something for them? They were trying to stay alive. They were trying to fight to live to the end of the day, survive the pogrom, put food on the table, and felt the privilege, felt the privilege of being able to observe Torah and mitzvahs. But our young people today are saying, why should I do that if it doesn't do anything for me? It doesn't do anything for me. So Rabbi Salavechik is saying, Bachodesh Hashlishi, Bachadash Hashlishi, the third renewal, the third expression of freedom was, and this is a hint to maybe the beginning of a formulation of an answer, the third hint of freedom was, the freedom to choose who I am. If, I, if the world, if I could do anything, there's actually research that talk about when we have too many choices, that's what enslaves us. I gave a drusha once about this and I described the experience of trying to buy salad dressing in the supermarket today. <laughs> the aisle of salad dressing. We would prefer that there were three salad dressings. A shtickle, a half, a piece of a shelf with three dressings. I choose, I rotate which one I buy. I go home, I enjoy my salad. Now, it's like a debilitating trip to the supermarket where you stand in the aisle, especially if you suffer from FOMO. What if, what if the other one's better? What if the other 3,000 are better? How am I going to try all of them? Which one do I know? Too many choices can be torture. Sometimes limiting choices gives you actually the greatest level of freedom. Sometimes having a life that's dictated to us, that's predetermined for us, that's told to us, a blueprint of how to live life for the best is actually the greatest form of freedom. It's part of an answer. Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning is also part of the answer. Is that we're not talking about physical bondage or suffering. We're talking about spiritual existential. How do I identify what shapes my existence? Who am I? How do I find meaning? 
How do I make those choices? I'm not giving you a lot of answers today, but I'm posing a lot of important questions. And they're really, really important questions. How do we teach our children and grandchildren the Chodesh Hashlishi? The renewal, the Chadash, the joy, the ecstasy, the Gishmak of being so enslaved to Hashem. Why is that so fantastic and so categorically different than all the other forms of, of slavery for another time? So now we get to Harsinai. Yisro leaves, whether chronologically it happened in this order or just thematically it's given to us in this order, we are ready for Harsinai. We arrive at Harsinai. Torah Moshe says, So shall you say to the house of Yaakov and tell the sons of Yisrael. Torah, Torah named it after the girl's school system. Kosamar Leves Yaakov. Just joking. The opposite. Kosamar Leves Yaakov. Why is it named that way? Because Rashi tells us. Leves Yaakov. Kosamar Leves Yaakov. Beloshan Hazek Kaseder Hazel. Leves Yaakov. Elo Hanashim. Toma Lehem Beloshan Raka. Besagei Leves Yisrael. Onshem Vedidukim. Perish Lezcharim. Dvar Makashem Kigidim. How do you inspire women? By telling, you know, Yamima Mizrahi, why is she such a powerful? She doesn't say, if you don't keep this, lightning's going to strike, you're going to die, you're going to break out in boils, you're going to be miserable, your life's going to be terrible. She attracts women by saying that the beauty and the majesty and the meaning and the gishmak and the inspiration. And she's got a lot of people. And the men need to be told, listen here, you lazy, good-for-nothing bums. This is what's expected of you. And I don't care whether you're moved or inspired to do it or not. Here's what you have to do. And if you don't do it, here are the consequences. So there's different languages to communicate with different people. It's true within genders, it's true on a whole lot of breakdowns you could divide differently, but the Torah is clearly giving us a pedagogic, a very, very important pedagogic insight, which is that we don't communicate everything. There's not one size fits all. Not everything is taught or transmitted with one lesson plan. This is a very, very important lesson for parents, for teachers, for rabbis, for educators of any form. There's not one lesson plan that's appropriate for every group. You have to know your audience and you have to speak to your audience in a way. It has to be captured, communicated, transmitted in a way which will speak to them, which will inspire them. Bessalavichik has famous words here in the eulogy he gave the tribute to the Rebetzin of Tolna, the Tolna Rebetzin, he spoke about, Why do we have two different Torahs? Is this suggesting that we have two different Torahs? And he talked about the two Shalshalas HaKabbalah, the Masora community of the father and the Masora of the mother. And that's what it says, Shema b'ni Musar avicha, ve'atitash Torah simecha. Musar avicha and Torah simecha. First of all, I would have thought it's the opposite. I would have thought, my mother gives me Musar, my father teaches Torah. Why is it considered atitash, what does it say? Shema b'ni Musar avicha, ve'atitash Torah simecha. What's the difference between Musar avicha and Torah simecha? And listen to the words of the Rav. We've shared this many times before. We're going to move on. We just can't get through this without sharing this. One learns much from the Father how to read a text, the Bible, the Talmud, how to comprehend, how to analyze, how to conceptualize, how to classify, how to infer, how to apply. One also learns from Father what to do and what not to do, what is morally right, what's morally wrong. Father teaches the Son the discipline of thought as well as the discipline of action. Father's traditions, tradition is an intellectual and moral one. That is why it is identified with Musr, which is the Torah term for discipline. What is Torah Simecha? What Torah does the mother pass on? Permit me to draw upon my own experiences, said the Rav. I used to watch my mother arranging the house in honor of a holiday. I used to see her recite prayers. I used to watch her recite the Sedra every Friday night, and I still remember the nostalgic tune. I learned from her very much. Most of all, I learned that Judaism expresses itself not only in formal compliance with the law, but also in a living experience. She taught me there's a flavor, a scent, a warmth to mitzvos. I learned from her the most important thing in life, to feel the presence of the Almighty and the gentle pressure of His hand resting upon my frail shoulders. Without her teachings, which quite often were transmitted to me in silence, I would have grown up a soulless being, 
dry and insensitive. Can you imagine those words what the Rav is saying? By the way, who was the Rav's major teacher? Who was his Rebbe Mufak? His father. He sat and he learned only by his father. From the day his father realized that the Rebbe in Chaslovich and the Cheder was only teaching him Tanya, he plucked him out of Cheder and put him in his own lap. And the, and the Rav Moshe Salvechik, the Rav's father, was his teacher. And yet, he doesn't say, I've been inspired to be a, a Jew, authentic Jew for my father. He says, without her teachings, quite often were transmitted to me in silence, I would have grown up a soulless being dry and insensitive. The laws of Shabbos, for instance, were passed on to me by my father. They're part of Musar Avicha. Shabbos as a living entity, though, as a queen, was revealed to me by my mother. It's part of Torah Simecha. The fathers knew much about Shabbos. The mothers lived Shabbos, experienced her presence and perceived her beauty and splendor. The fathers taught generations how to observe Shabbos. Mothers taught generations how to greet Shabbos, how to enjoy her 24-hour presence. And I'll only say this editorial comment on it. In today's day and age, when our women, thank God, are much more educated, and many of our women are in a position to teach their children also the laws and analyze and conceptualize, and I'm okay with that. It's beautiful, it's wonderful. We should celebrate our educated women who can, like the fathers, be teaching the laws. Here's my only point. If the mothers and fathers are both teaching the laws, who's giving the flavor and the scent and the feeling? It's okay for both mothers and fathers to now be consumed, to be, to be positioned and to be educated and to, be, to have the capacity to teach the laws, but someone's got to delegate, someone's got to take the responsibility for the flavor and the scent. And maybe in our pursuit of creating this equality that everybody can teach the laws, we can't neglect or dismiss the importance. Because in the end of the day, when the Rav described who he was as an authentic Jew, it wasn't from having all the laws. It was from what he learned from his mother. That was what was critical to help him not be a soulless being, dry and insensitive. So as much as we are pursuing, appropriately, beautifully, empowering everyone to be in a position to teach the laws, we have to make sure that we're also preserving homes where there is the sight and the flavor and the scent and the warmth of the mitzvahs that Rabbi Salavitchik so beautifully describes. The Torah then goes on right before the Torah is given. We're going to get to our psukim momentarily. Here's the good news. Rabbi Moskowitz is not teaching today. So we can go on until Mincha. I don't know if you have any plans, but I'm good. Okay, everyone relax. That was a joke. That was a joke. That was a joke. They come to our Sinai before they're ready to receive the Torah. They have to do something another art which is lost on us today. What do they do before they're ready to receive the Torah? V'kidashtam. They do something. Kidashtam in this, con- in this context is translated as, where am I? I'm on Perak Yutes. Pasuk Yud. Perak Yutes, Pasuk Yud, page 402. Hashem Hashem tells Moshe, go to the people. The Kiddashtam Hayom Machar. Our scroll translates the Kiddashtam as sanctify them. The Rav Chomish, the Oyu Chomish translates the Kiddashtam as prepare them. Why is the Rav Chomish translating the word the Kiddashtam differently? What is the root of the word the Kiddashtam? Kuftalachin, Kodesh means holy. So why is the Rabbi Salavichah Chomish, do they not speak Hebrew as well? As the art scroll, why is they describing it separately? Look at Unklus. Zakta Heluga Unklus, Vayom Hashem Lamosha, Izel Lavas Ama, Utizaminun Yoma. What does Tizaminun? What does that mean? Lazmin. What does Lazmin mean? It means to invite, but loosely we're translating instead of invite, means to prepare. For example, when it comes to mitzvahs, if you designate an object to be used in a mitzvah, 
That's sugya. What's that sugya called? Hazmana milsa olav milsa. If you designate an object to be used in a mitzvah, if you prepare an object for a mitzvah, does it take on the status of holiness even before it's used for the mitzvah? Does it take on that status or not? Hazmana milsa olav milsa. So lezameh zimun hazmana means to prepare. So yes, vikidashta means holy. And the art scroll is not wrong. Baruch Hashem, it's not wrong, it's describing. Make yourselves holy. Sanctify yourselves before you walk in and gain from this experience. But Rabbi Salavechik is translating, or his Chumash is translating it differently because it's basing on unklos. It means to prepare. And why is that? Listen to these critically important words by the Rav. Holiness means preparation. Holiness is not a transcendental phenomenon which arrives against man's will. Man does not bear the yoke of holiness if he doesn't want it. Man must choose it, wait for it, yearn for it. Only then does holiness descend slowly and cleave to us. In this three-day prelude to receiving the Torah, Moshe warned the nation, get ready for three days. Similarly, Aaron had to submit to a seven-day preparation prior to the dedication of the Mishkan. Every Kohen Gadol subsequently went through a similar sub, uh, sequester prior to Yom Kippur. What is the analogy between Aaron's preparation before the Mishkan dedication and every Kohen Gadol who the Mishnahis and Yuma describe was sequestered for seven days before Yom Kippur and here three days before our Sinai. The common denominator of all, any encounter with holiness doesn't arrive suddenly. It only comes with preparation. It's not really a Maimar Chazal, we quote it as such, but there is a statement that says, Ein Kedusha Beli Hachana. There is no holiness without preparation. In this instant gratification, instant and on-demand world, we need to learn that to experience holiness, it doesn't come on demand. Holiness can't be ordered up on demand or downloaded on demand. It doesn't happen in real time. Holiness requires preparation. You have to be in the right mindset. You have to go through the right effort. You have to take the right initiative. It requires our partnership. Ein Kedusha Belihachana. And we learn that from here. The Jewish people don't stumble into Harsinai, next thing you know, the Torah is given. Three days they're told to prepare. And we have the Shlosh Hashimei Hagbala. We have that each year before Shavuos when we recreate and we relive that sense of preparation. You don't just walk into shul and you're moved by davening. You came late, you're throwing on your towels and tefillin. I struggle with this. I admit I'm working on it. And Kedusha Bali Hachana. You're only going to get out as much out of something as the time and the preparation that you put into it. And then the opposite or the other side of the same coin is, the Torah then continues, be ready for the third day. You can't experience holiness or happiness or meaning or joy or purpose without preparation. You have to put in the effort. You have to prepare. But on the other hand, you have to always be ready. God's rendezvous with man occurs at an appointed time. Be ready. It's the command of Judaism. Each moment of conscious existence is a divine gift out of which the summons, the service of Hashem emerges. Judaism believes that each person has a fixed place in creation. If I find myself thrust in here and now, it's because Hashem thinks I can act here and now efficiently. In other words, the yunichonim, a Jew has to be ready at all times. My mission might be right now. This is why I'm here. This is what I meant to do. I might experience Hashem in the most unexpected places. So if I'm not ready for it, I'll never experience it. But if I'm constantly ready for it, and nechonim, if I'm ready and prepared to see and to feel Hashem, then I'll be ready. Before the Torah is given, the Torah describes, The entire nation shuddered. The Gemara Brachos and Dachav Beis tells us that just as at Archorev, there was dread, there was awe, there was trembling, there was fear, so too, every time we sit down to study Torah, 
You don't study Torah in Yagatkas, you don't study Torah in a recliner, you don't study Torah sipping a pina colada. Torah requires an environment, an attitude, the same way that we stood at Harsinai. It has to be done with a sense of awe, with trembling, with fear. And when do we re-experience this? When do we re-experience this? Every Monday, Thursday, and Shabbos. The whole notion of Kriya Satora is a recreation of what we experienced at Harsinai. The fact that you have two Gabayim on either side and the Aliyah stands there, it's exactly the same as you had the setup at Harsinai. We are at the base, it's red from a bima, on top of the bima. All of the people are at the base of the bima, surrounding the bima, the Gabayim on each side. The whole experience of Kriya Satora is a dramatic recre- recreation of Maimed Harsinai, going through it all over again, which explains why some have the custom to stand for Kriya Satora. It's based on Gemara Sota. The Gemara Sota Dav Lamites says, Amarava Baravuna, Kevan Shaniftach Sefer Torah, Asula Saper. Afilu Bidvar Halacha. When the Torah is open, you're not allowed to talk. Even if you're having a Halacha conversation. Shinemar quotes a Pasuk in Nechemya, Pisko Amdu Kolam, Enamida Ella Shtika. It says they stood. Standing is silent, is a reference to being silent, to stand silently. And therefore, says the Gemara, from when the Torah is open, Shashtel, there's no talking. You have to be quiet. The Mordechai, on the back of Gemara Shabbos, in Tovchav Beis, quotes the Maharami Rutenberg. The great Maharami Rutenberg had a custom based on this Gemara. says, Maharami Rutenberg, Hayaome, Bishas Kriya Sator, Bishas Shemalan Hatinok. Marami Rudenberg had two customs. He would stand at a bris and he would stand at, during Kriya Satora. Why was he standing during Kriya Satora? This is the origin of the custom. Shulchan Aruch doesn't quote it. One is not obligated halachically, the Shulchan Aruch strictly, one is not obligated to stand during Kriya Satora. But, uh, but there is this positive, virtuous custom based on the Ma'ra Mirutenberg, the last of the Bali Atosfos. And the Bach, the Ba'is Chadash, quotes why. Why did he stand? So the Bach writes, As it says, you could sit down in between aliyahs, but since Kriyas Torah is a recreation, a dramatic recreation of Harsinai, that's why the Maharami Rundberg had this custom. And the Ramah quotes that there is a positive notion that those who want to have a custom of standing for Kriyas Torah are standing. Why are we standing? According to others, you're standing so that you're not distracted. The Taz brings down a different reason. He says the reason you stand is to be quiet. So you're more likely to be quiet when you're standing than when you're sitting. You're giving awe, reverence. You're showing greater respect. So you're more likely to focus and to follow. There's barely a minion following Kriyas Torah these days. Everybody's reading a book or the Parsha printouts or the handouts or the, they found better reading than the Word of God. We got to go back to listening to the Kriya Satora. Shnai Mikra Targum, but also listening to the Kriya Satora. But we're listening to Kriya Satora not just as an act of study. That's the point. Kriya Satora on Shabbos morning is not an act of communal study, although it has a component of that. It's much more. It is a historical reenactment of Harsinai. Literally once a week we get together and we recreate what was the most seminal moment in human history. And that's done dramatically by the very layout and by the whole experience. And one of the characters, minor characters, is you. As one of the people of, of the nation who were there and who are listening, we, um, 
we stand. That was the custom of the Maharam Ni Rittenberg. So I'll, I'll give you a little preview to tonight's Seder Siddur snippet. Every, every night we send out a six minute, it's supposed to be six minutes, every night a six minute insight into the Siddur. We're still, uh, we're finishing Berchos HaShachar. So at the end of Hamavir Shena, Vihiratzon, we ask Hashem to targileinu besorasecha. Make us accustomed. Give us the habit of living with your Torah. We'll talk tonight more about what exactly that means to develop such a habit. But the Ger Rebbe asks, what do you mean give me a habit? I want it to be second nature that I live life looking through the prism of Torah. That my life is guided by Torah values. That I am a Ben Torah. We are a family of Torah. A Torah family. That should be second nature. It should be our custom or our habit. Ask the Ger Rebbe, what happened to what happened to our parasha? What happened to the idea that the Torah should be felt anew every day as if I receive the Torah right now? Isn't Targileinu Besorosech, I ask Hashem, isn't habit the opposite of freshness and newness? How do I reconcile the two? Should I give you the answer or make you listen? So the Ger Rebbe says, we as Jews can appreciate this. He says, we have a natural habit have an appetite to eat. You don't have to mark your calendar. Your, your Google calendar doesn't have to remind you to have lunch. Your stomach does an excellent job of that. Right? We all know innately, instinctively, we have a natural appetite and desire to eat. That doesn't take away from the fact that when we eat, it's delicious. And it's like we've eaten that for the first time. So just like in the world of eating, you could have a natural inclination to eat, but at the same time, crave delicious food and eat it, stuff it in your face as if it's the first time you ever ate it. So, so too with Torah. It's not a contradiction to say, I can have a habit and a natural inclination by rote to love Torah, but still consume it in a way which it is incredibly delicious. Okay, let's get to our psukim. And bear with me for a few more minutes. We'll get through some really important psukim over here. We have the Ten Commandments. The last one, Losachmod, is the hardest. How do you understand Losachmod? It's really kind of anticlimactic after all these very significant Aseret uh, Dibros. Don't be jealous of what your friend has. Can you really be commanded in emotion, be told, don't be envious, don't be jealous? But they have a nicer car. They have better behaved children. They have a more beautiful spouse. There's more doting on them. How can you really control yourself from, from losach mode? Literally, spouse and children and his donkey, his car, his Lexus, and Mercedes. How do you control your emotion? How do you control your emotion? Ibn Ezra has a lot of different answers to it for another time. So, then the very end of the parsha. This is what we're going to study. Page 412 in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash. Page 412 in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash. Perak. Chaf. Pasuk Tesvav. Chapter 20, verse 15. Why are we picking up over here? Because right after the Torah is given, literally, right after Aseris Adibros, the Torah tells us a description of what it was like. V'chol ha'am re'imus ha'kolos ve'esalapidim. All the people saw the thunder and the flames, the sound of the shofar, the smoking mountain, and, and they trembled and they stood afar. We also learn from here this notion, we trembled. That's what the Balaturim and our prophet describes. This is the source of shuckling when you're studying Torah. When you're studying Torah, you shuckle back and forth. You get, whether you're sitting, you're standing up at a shtender, you're shuckling, vayanu, 
just as they were trembling, just as they were shaking, just as they were so nervous at that moment, the greatest revelation of all time, of all history, we recreate that also through Limur HaTorah, learning. Davening is us talking to God, Torah learning is God talking to us. Every time we open Torah and we learn it, we're back at Harsinai. And just at Harsinai, it was done with a sense of awe and reverence and significance. It was done with a sense of sobriety, of seriousness. So too, when we study Torah, Vayanu, we shuckle, and the whole attitude should be with a sense of, of great seriousness. People said, whoa, 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 we can't take this. God speaking to us, this revelation, it's nice and all, but it's overwhelming, it's scary. Make him stop. Moshe, you speak to us and we'll listen. And let him not speak to us anymore or lest we'll die. Moshe says, relax, don't worry. Why is he speaking to you directly? What does that word mean? We'll see in a moment. Unclear. And the reason he's doing it is so that all will be on your faces and you will not you will not make mistakes. And so the people recoiled, they stood back. And Moshe approached the thick cloud where God was. Okay, those that very modest, that's our ambition to cover these psukim. So bear with me a few more minutes as we analyze and look through these psukim just a little bit. All the people saw Esakolos. All the people saw. Rashi says, Says Rashi, quoting really the Medrash, that this description of Har Sinai was so incredible. The Egyptians had so mistreated and abused the Jewish people that they had left the Jewish people a crippled people. We were wandering through the desert, lame and missing limbs, blind, deaf, mute. Some had become depressed, others overwhelmed by anxiety and worry. And yet at that special moment, Rashi describes what happened at Harsinai. There was a miraculous moment of complete healing. Complete healing. Rashi is quoting the Medrash. At the moment we stood at Harsinai, there was no one... Uh, among us, there was no blind, there were no deaf, there were no mute. Nobody was learning impaired, or learning disabled. Any disability was healed. Yaakov Shimoni quotes Hashem as saying, It wouldn't be right for me to give the Torah to people who are afflicted with disabilities. And so miraculously, at Harsinai, the blind, blind began to see, and the mute began to speak, and the deaf began to hear. What does it mean, Eino Din? The Yalkut's quoting God. God says, it wouldn't be right. This is a really big moment. It wouldn't be right for anyone here to have any limitation, any disability, any handicap, we used to say in the old days. It wouldn't be right. What does it mean, Eino Din, it wouldn't be right? What does it mean, it wouldn't be right? So there's two lessons in this very powerful Medrash. Rav Nachman suggests that we need not take the Medrash literally, that these maladies and deficiencies were healed and removed. But he says when we spend our lives emphasizing our goof, our physical needs and, subs- and sustenance and pleasure and satisfaction, we remain acutely aware of each physical pain and ache and full-fledged disability. But the Torah empowers us to remember that we're not just a body. And our existence is not only defined by the ache and the pain and the limitation and the disability of the body. But Torah nourishes and Torah sustains the soul. 
and our soul, the center of moral thinking and cumulative memory and decision-making and emotional feeling and rational thought, that's what defines us. And no matter what, ha- what is happening with the body, if we nurture the soul, we are whole, we are intact, we are healthy. So when we enhance the Torah component of our lives, we are healed. It doesn't mean you don't still need the nip re- knee replacement and the hip replacement and the whatever other replacement, whatever other we're going through. You may still need the doctors and the medicines and the replacements and the therapy to heal the body. But if we nourish our soul with Torah, we are healed in the sense that we've overcome that limiting self-definition of only seeing ourselves as a body. We have the capacity to transcend our limitations and to nourish our souls when we see ourselves as a soul with nothing at all holding us back. And there are incredible stories of people who've had severe disabilities, and yet who see themselves as a soul, and therefore they're whole and complete. Rabitzi Hurwitz out in California, who I've written and spoken about, who suffers from ALS, who the only movement he has his entire body from head to toe are his eyes. And with his eyes, I think today or yesterday was his anniversary, I saw he posted online about his wife, a happy anniversary. You ask him if anything's holding him back, does he have any disability? He'd say, I don't know what you're talking about. He's lying in bed paralyzed from head to toe, the only thing he can move with his eyes. And he uses his eyes to write a weekly blog, Dvar Torah, online, with such incredible amuna, you've never seen anything like it. So, some Isvar stubs their toe, and they say, what was me, where is Hashem, I'm so disabled, my toe hurts. And he lies there paralyzed, head to toe, and he says, I'm so blessed by Hashem, and here I want to acknowledge all the blessings in my life, and I'm complete, I'm whole, I'm healthy, because I have a soul, and it has a capacity to express Torah. The second critical lesson is that when Hashem gave the Torah, He allowed the deaf to hear, the blind to see, the lame to walk. He allowed everyone to see and hear and learn clearly. And it's a model of how Torah is supposed to be transmitted, that it's accessible to all. That our Torah and our Torah school systems and our communities should be set up in such a way that nobody is excluded. That everyone has a right. Everyone is entitled. Everyone should have access to Torah. And we need to be very, very sensitive and uh, very careful to design our school systems, our communities, that everyone can feel that they have access to Torah. I know that's not always so simple and it can get complicated, but everyone deserves access to Torah. Okay, so let's, I want to finish up with a couple more points. The whole nation saw the sounds. And of course, the question everybody asks on that Pasuk is, what does it mean the whole nation saw the sounds? We hear sounds and we see sights. So did the Torah get mixed up over here? What in the world happened over here that we were seeing sounds and hearing Sights. There is actually a uh, condition. Um, what's the name of the condition? Synesthesia, where people confuse. They see color. The, the, their, their senses are hooked together, and uh, they don't only hear sounds, they can hear sounds as sights, and it, it is a condition. So is that what's going on here? The Jewish people collectively were struck with this condition. What exactly is happening over here? So let's look at some Mephoshim fairly quickly. Rashi says, This was a unique event in history. It never happened again. They saw sound, something that never else happened. When God speaks, His speech is very different than man's speech. He speaks in such a way that you can see the sounds that He was speaking, and that's what it means that they saw. That was so unusual, it was so unfamiliar, they recoiled as if they were thrown back because to see sounds was so unfamiliar to them they had never experienced it before so much so that it sent them recoiling and flying and flying back 
The Rashbam says, Remes HaKolos, HaBarad Vavanim. Kedachsev Kolos Elokim Ubarad. They saw there were, there were things to see that went along with this sight and sound and light show. So it's not so unusual. The Rashbam sees it more literally. The Svarno also weighs in, Remes HaKolos, Kemolibi Ra'ah. Everybody's weighing in here. Everybody's bothered by this exact same question. The Ibn Ezra. The Ibn Ezra writes, what does it mean that they all saw the sounds? The Ibn Ezra says, the expression to see the sounds is metaphoric. We know that many places in Tanakh, we use that expression for something intangible or conceptual. For example, later in Sefer Dvarim, we're going to say, Look! Give a kick. Give a look. See, I'm placing in front of you today bracha uklala. Could they see the bracha and klala? They didn't actually have two monitors, two displays, two flat screens. Here's the bracha and klala. So the Ibn Ezra says it's an expression that we use. Look, do you see what I'm saying? You see what I'm saying? So you see what I'm saying? I don't see what you're saying. What are you talking about? We use it in our vernacular. Do you see what I'm saying? So the Ibn Ezra expresses, Ibn Ezra explains, that's what the Torah is saying. That do you see what I'm saying? Or I see your perspective. I see where you're coming from. Let me you see where I'm coming from. So we use this expression. Ibn Ezra says that's what's going on over here. The Kliyakar has a different interpretation. If we had more time, I'd read the Kliyakar inside. You should read the Kliyakar inside. Don't get off the hook with me just telling you. But the Kliyakar says they didn't see the sounds as colors. They visualized Hashem's commandments. This was unbelievable. Before there were projectors and before there were flat screens and monitors, Hashem achieved Lahavdil Elef Alfei Avdalos at the Super Bowl, you'll be in the stadium, and when you didn't see the play on the ground, you can watch on the monitor. There's a huge monitor, so you can hear the roar of the crowd, and you can see what's going on on the monitor. So the Kliyakar, Lahavdil, says that as Hashem vocalized the words, they appeared in the air. So they not only were hearing, but it was using many of their senses. Simultaneously, they heard, and simultaneously they saw. So they were listening, but you could see the teleprompter at the same time. They were able to read the words even as they were listening to them being recited. So Rashi, the Kliyakar, the Ibn Ezra all are saying different creative explanations to understand exactly what they saw. But I want to share with you another interpretation. And that is that some speakers are so incredibly talented, some speakers are so talented when they communicate ideas, they're so vivid, they're so descriptive, that it makes them come so alive that you're not only listening to the words they're saying, as you hear them, it's painting a portrait. It's creating an image of what they are describing. You're listening to words, but you're also picturing the picture of what they're telling you. And I'm not just saying I'm describing to you, you know, I was once in Montana and the, and the park there was magnificent. I want to describe to you. And I'm going to use every adjective in my tool belt to describe to you the scene that I saw. And because I'm so effective at describing it to you, now you're picturing the incredible mountain, the river, and yet I'll have to go. You should all see it. It's absolutely incredible. Rustic elegance. You should sign up and go this summer. There's several trips. But it's not just describing a natural scene. Perhaps what the Torah is telling us here is describing something so different. V'chola amro imesakolos means that as the Torah was being given, we didn't just hear, you know what? Hashem says, I'm giving you something called Shabbos. You know what we saw? The Shabbos table. As Shabbos was being given, they smelled the kugel and the chicken soup and they tasted the challah and they heard the zmiros. What Rabbi Salavechik describes as the Torah Mecha, what he got from his mother is the ro'im esakolos. 
to be listening to a talk, to be listening to a Dvar Torah, a speech, to be learning in such a way that we're not just absorbing or downloading the words or the information, we're actually painting a portrait, creating an image and a picture of what we aspire to attain. I'm learning about Shabbos, not just to learn about the laws of Shabbos, I'm learning about Shabbos because it's painting a picture for me of an ideal Shabbos table. That law is not just dry and sterile and uninspiring, it's not unexciting or monotonous, but the experience of our Sinai, and ever since then, the experience of transmitting Torah should be done in such a way, to envision the message, and to absorb the sound in a way that one can picture the ideal of what we're trying to create. And I think that's also part of the Torah Simecha, just to come back to what we saw earlier. Is that, yeah, we need the Musar Avicha. Here's the Lamites Malachos. My son and I are making a Siyam on the beautiful Lamites Malachos book of Rabbi Chait. My father helped us with it too. So, Avasubanim. So, Lamites Malachos, the do's and the don'ts. You can, you can't. Here are the rules, the rules, the rules, the rules. That's great. But you know, as we talked about transmitting to the future generations, it can't just be about the rules. It can't be dry and sterile. It can't just be the kolos. Here's my voice of all the rules, do's and don'ts. It's got to be v'chol ro'im. You have to see the vibrancy, the geschmack, the joy, the happiness, the pleasure. You've got to see why it's meaningful and ideal and enriching. And it's up to us to paint that picture. It's up to us to recreate that experience of v'chol ro'im es kolos a lot more to say about all of this, but we are out of time. Wishing you a fantastic day. Don't forget next Monday night with Moshe Weimager. Join the friends of BRS, brsonline.org backslash friends.